0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series this week, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message titled, The God Who Shows No Partiality. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 48, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: If you've never seen a statue depicting Lady Justice, well, you ought to have a look. She has a sword in one hand, and she has a beam balance in the other. She's weighing evidence fairly, and her sword is the power of law. But what's especially fascinating about her is that her eyes are covered with a blindfold. It's very important. It symbolizes that she can't see who is before her. She doesn't notice the color of their skin nor their ethnicity, whether the person is a man or a woman, whether old or young, whether rich or poor. Her judgment is based entirely on the weight of evidence that has been given to her, or the weighing of each case on its own merit. That's a very fitting description of justice. Many ancient Jews at the time of the writing of the New Testament had difficulty with that concept. And in some ways, we might understand it. And in other ways, what speaks of great wickedness? Let me explain. Throughout their history, the Israelites were constantly tempted to compromise with the idolatry and immorality that was practiced by so many of the nations that surrounded them. So much of the corruption they experienced in their own history was because they had adopted the religious practices of these nations and incorporated it into their own. And eventually, the ancient prophets, after warning Israel over and over again, pronounced God's judgment. If Israel would refuse to be a nation set apart from all other nations on earth, then God would send those very nations to utterly defeat Israel. And that was the history of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. When Israel returned from their exile and returned to the promised land, they realized that in spite of their sins and the suffering they had undergone, yet a gracious God had spared them as a people. And so they needed time to reflect. God had indeed been merciful to his people. In those early days when they had come back from captivity, Ezra and Nehemiah had led the people to repentance of sin and a national revival. But and this is key, there was a new determination among the people of Israel never to fall into the old sinful patterns of idolatry as had been true of their ancestors. And so Israel returned to the law of God, shall we say, with a zeal that resembled a passion beyond all bounds. Now, this struggle against being contaminated by the nations led to attitudes that were most ungracious and unkind to their neighbors. You know, most Jews simply ignored the promise of Abraham that through him, a blessing would come to all the nations. Instead of seeking to bless the nations, they only mistrusted the nations and yet the Bible promised blessings to Gentiles. Isaiah promised that the day would come when a great company of the Gentiles would come and seek the God of Israel. Indeed, Isaiah also said there was going to be more. Isaiah 40 verse 6 says that Israel would become a light to the nations. But of course, in the first century, things were definitely not that way. The Roman historian Tacitus said that the Jewish attitude toward the Gentiles, he said, they regard the rest of mankind with all the hatred of enemies. Indeed, you might remember how the religious leaders accused Jesus. Listen to the insult that's recorded in John 8:48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And that's just the attitude they had toward the Samaritans. And Jesus speaks to the attitude that people often expressed toward the Gentiles as a whole. You know, in Matthew 18, 17, it records Jesus is saying, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus is not saying that it's just to treat Gentiles like the hated tax collectors, but he's affirming that that's exactly what people thought. Demon-possessed, greedy, and traitorous tax collectors people who disregard the law of God, Samaritans, and all Gentiles, they're all in the same camp. So hear me when I say that this attitude was deeply rooted in Israel. And even when the first group of people came to faith in Jesus, that attitude, well, it wasn't immediately changed. See, I liken that to the very famous story of John Newton, who had beat a slave ship captain. And immediately after his conversion, it had not yet occurred to him that being a slave ship captain was deeply sinful. It was only as he grew in Christ that he became aware of how God dishonoring was such a practice. So we've been tracking the events of Acts chapter 10. Peter is now, for the first time in his life, in the home of a Gentile. He's a Roman military man stationed in Caesarea. He's also a centurion, a man who's commanded troops. But he's been seeking the God of Israel, and to prepare for Peter's coming, he's invited a large group of family members and friends and colleagues to join him in his large home. And Peter arrives deeply shaken that he's standing in the home of a Gentile. House is packed. He announces that up until this moment, he would never have considered entering into such a home. But God had given him a vision not to call any person common or unclean. Peter is still in the process of being transformed. Why have you called me, Peter asks Cornelius, and Cornelius responds by telling Peter of the angel that has come from God, who has visited him. So says Cornelius to Peter, here you are. The angel told me to send for you, and so my house is packed full of my extended Gentile household. We've all gathered to hear what God has to say to us through you. The floor is yours, my friend. Talk to us. And here's where we pick up. So let's start slowly, Acts 10, 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Wow! What an unusual thing for a first century Jew to say. Just like Lady Justice, the true God of Israel does not show partiality. He has no regard for the ethnicity, race, gender, or language group of the earth. His judgment of the human race will not happen on those grounds. See, how many of us will say, well, you know, that should be obvious, Ah, but it isn't. See, the only reason that it was obvious in our culture today is that there has been a 2,000-year Christian influence that has impacted the way in which people think. It was never obvious until the Jesus movement began. But while that's a joyful truth to celebrate, it's the second half of Peter's statement that needs some work at understanding. See, if God accepts those who fear him and do what's right, well now, putting things that way raises the issue of faith and works. Is it really true that after we fear God and then do what's right, then God finds us acceptable? Does that mean just fear God and do what's right and you're gonna be saved? Well, no, that's not what Peter is saying. For if he were, he would be contradicting himself. All we need to do is go forward to chapter 11, verse 14, where Peter's explaining what happened in that house later to a group of Jewish Christians. And in chapter 11, 14, Peter says, Cornelius had been told to send for Peter and that Peter would declare to those Gentiles the message by which they would be saved. You see, says Peter, these people weren't saved because they feared God and did what was right. They needed to repent of their sins and submit to the message of Jesus in order to be saved. Well, if that's the case, what does Peter mean when he tells the household of Cornelius that anyone who fears God and does what's right will be acceptable to God? See, the early church after the apostolic era remembered Peter's words, and they actually struggled to understand them. And they said that Cornelius, like Abraham, when he was a pagan, already had God's grace at work in his life. God's grace was showing itself in advance of his salvation in that he was driven to fear God and do what was right. That's the means that God used to open the hearts of those who hear the good news. Now, I know, I know. There are other times when a profane and an extreme sinner will suddenly be changed. And that was true of Saul of Tarsus. But there are other times when grace changes behaviors and makes people open to the message in advance. And Peter is saying, that's what has been happening to you Gentiles. And that tells me that that God's not interested in your race or nationality. And then Peter goes on. He's now telling these Gentiles what they need to know in order to be saved. So let's keep reading. We've come to Acts 10, 36 to 38. Peter says they had noticed the activities of Jesus. That's why Peter could so easily talk to them about Jesus. Everyone in the room was listening.
0: We wanna thank you for your faithful prayers and generous gifts that help ensure that solid Bible teaching is available around the world. Because of your generosity, all of our international Bible teaching efforts and partnerships happen, including the distribution of Dr. John's new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, being made available in 11 key languages distributed across India. It's such a privilege to work in partnership with you and ministry friends like Back to the Bible India and Back to the Bible Sri Lanka. As we work together, Bible resources are being made available around the world. And a special thank you for your gifts the gifts you sent during our international focus in March. And may I encourage you to continue to support these international partnerships throughout the year, or even consider becoming an international monthly partner. To learn more or to offer a gift in support of international ministries, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: It might well be, as many have suggested, that Luke only gives us a summary of what Peter had to say that day, not the entire sermon. Well, that does make sense to me, and yet, if that's right, this summary is a very well-done summary indeed. So, you're going to notice that Peter has a very short, brief summary of the ministry of Jesus. You yourselves know, he says, You you may have been living in the very Roman city of Caesarea, But the ministry of Jesus, well, it can't have escaped your notice. I mean, after all, everyone in Israel has been paying attention. And if we were to do a brief summary of Mark's gospel, well, we would divide it into three very easy sections. You know, the baptism of John, followed by the Galilean ministry of Jesus, along with his many miracles, and then his death and resurrection. And I make mention of that because it was the early church father, a man by the name of Papias who indicated to us that when Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, he did so while Peter was telling him what to write down. See, most Bible teachers assume Peter's handiwork all over the Gospel of Mark. And on the basis of that, I find it interesting that while in the house of Cornelius, Peter seems to have given a brief overview of the Gospel he was to help shape and fashion as he did. See, I mean to say that Peter seems to have been able to give a brief overview of the life of Jesus, as well as an at-length and in-depth study of the life of Jesus. I think that's fascinating. Good evangelists seem to be able to do that. When someone asks us, you know, what's Christianity all about, we should be able to give a very brief outline. At the same time, we should be able to give a longer outline, depending on what the situation warrants. It's just a part of being ready to share as much of the gospel as we are provided opportunity. But do you notice what Peter emphasizes? It was God the Father who anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. I think Peter's talking about the baptism of Jesus here and how God has made a public declaration that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Peter wants to make sure that everyone understands that there that, that many were and still are oppressed by the devil but that Jesus had the power to liberate them all. Of course, Peter is leading his audience to the climax of the story. It's in Acts 10, 39 to 42. And we are witnesses of all that he both did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Notice how Peter says, we are witnesses of all that he did. See, throughout his lifetime, Peter would often return to that very theme. First Peter 5 verse 1, he would refer to himself as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. 2 Peter 1.16, he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. See, Peter wants to make the point that when it comes to the account of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, something unique has happened. See, Jesus appointed 12 men to be with him so that the things he did would be witnessed. For three years, these appointed men had watched Jesus speak on numerous occasions. They had received personal training from him. They had been present when the miracles were being done. You know, what Peter was sharing with Cornelius was not hearsay or rumor or the things that he'd received from another source. Peter is the primary source. And that's so important for us as we read this account later on. The gospel accounts of Jesus, that is, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not the accounts that were written by biased historians hundreds of years later. They're primary accounts. They're eyewitness accounts. They come from men who had seen the things firsthand. Don't you see, when we quote the scripture, we're quoting from those very accounts It is as if we let Matthew and Peter and Paul and John into the room and allow them again to tell us all over again what they saw. And so the crowd in Peter's house now realized why the angel had instructed Cornelius to bring this man, Peter, into his house. This was the one that Jesus handpicked, one of his trained men. Peter carries on. And here notice that he now centers on the death of Jesus. They put him to death, he says, and when he says they... And when he makes reference to the Jews, please, for us who read this account now, don't read this in the light of the perversion that came about later, when people began to speak about the Jews as Christ killers. Always remember that's a perversion. See, Peter was a Jew. And for the first five to seven years, the entire early church was made up of only Jews. It was the Jewish church that brought the gospel to the world. And when Peter says the Jews killed Jesus, he's using the word Jew in a very restrictive sense. He means the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In short, he's speaking about the corrupt religious establishment. They killed Jesus, he says. And Peter then says, even while this was done, God raised him on the third day. See, isn't it interesting how the religious leaders thought Jesus worthy of death and how God the Father thought Jesus worthy of resurrection? And that's clear, isn't it? The thinking of the religious elite and the thinking of God the Father couldn't have been more at odds. And that seems to be the gospel formula in Acts. They killed him. God raised him. And then notice that Peter returns to the matter of witnesses. Jesus didn't make himself known to everyone, he says, but to those witnesses he had chosen. But there, Peter says, these witnesses, of which he is one, ate and drank with him. Demonstrates that Jesus was not a spirit, but that he had been bodily raised from the dead. That's very important because in Greek thinking, you could have bodiless spirit beings. the idea of a bodily resurrection was simply unknown. But then after making the facts of the case known, Peter now moves on to what's going on in Cornelius' home. Along with the other Gentiles who are gathered there, Peter simply adds, he commanded us to preach about this. So let's read verse 42 again and go to verse 43. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See, notice how Peter adds, it's not just we, the preachers, who are also the eyewitnesses, but the Old Testament bears witness. And that was important because you remember, Cornelius was a God-fearer. You know, somewhere in his spiritual journey, he had become a lover of the God of Israel. He'd been studying the Jewish scriptures, and Peter says, and he's saying it to Cornelius, those scriptures you've been studying, it is they that are leading you to this very moment, this moment of encounter of Jesus. And for what purpose? So that you might believe in him, so that you might receive forgiveness from your sins. That's the point of climax. There's been a point to this story about Jesus. It's so Cornelius and his household would not only hear, but they would believe, and through believing— the crushing reality of their sins against God and the sins that the Jewish scriptures had already made plain to them, these sins would be forgiven. I wonder if for a moment all was quiet and solemn and holy and convicting, this inviting quietness. And then Luke finishes the story, Acts 10, 44-48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. It's a wonderful line. I hope you didn't miss it. The believers from among the circumcised, says Luke. Luke himself was a Gentile. The Jewish believers were amazed the Holy Spirit fell on all the Gentiles in that room and they began to speak in tongues. So why is that important? Well, it's important because on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit had first been poured out onto the church, one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is that they spoke in tongues. And now the Holy Spirit is giving clear evidence, unmistakable terms, that God shows no partiality, that Jesus and his salvation is available for all who believe. The Holy Spirit also causes the uncircumcised to speak in tongues, even as the Jewish circumcised believers did. God shows he makes no distinctions. And with that, Peter has the joy of baptizing all who are in that house. And just like that, the gospel of Jesus became Jewish and Gentile. And just like that, the church must continue to learn that God shows no partiality today. All races, peoples, languages, and cultures are welcome to come, believe, and be forgiven, and to be made a part of one body, the Church.
0: Thanks so much, John. You know, as you've said, we serve a God that has no partiality. And yet, in our world today, there's division and race discrimination, and it all seems to be at the forefront. So, how ought the Church respond?
1: You know, it's very difficult because there are so many different theories about what constitutes racism today. And I don't wanna get into that, but it has uh, made divisiveness in my estimation even greater than it should have been. Um, Even saying that I recognize can be a divisive statement. I wanna be very careful here. But I think we need to begin with simply the understanding that we all are made in the image of God and that God demands of us that we recognize image bearers of God with respect.
0: Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Do you want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special four-episode video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a video episode from Dr. John, subscribe to Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.